Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Hey guys, uh, we are launching into the new year with a big, big series on how to make and break habits without um, breaking your spirit. Uh, so many of us approach New Year's resolutions specifically and behavior change generally in a way that uh, involves a lot of shame and self-flagellation. Uh, and we're going to help you rethink that, not only in broad strokes, but also in very specific ways. So in this series, we're going to talk about exercise, diet, sleep, uh, and of course, meditation uh, with people who uh, almost all of them, almost all of the experts we recruited for this have deep uh, meditation expertise that they're bringing to the table. So that brings us to our first guest, uh, Kelly McGonigal, who is um, uh, quite impressive. She's a, a health psychologist uh, who's taught at Stanford University. She's written best-selling books and uh, has one of the most popular TED Talks, which is called How to Make Stress Your Friend. Uh, her books include um, uh, The Willpower Instinct, The Upside of Stress, and she's got a new book called The Joy of Movement, which is about exercise. And uh, so we're going to talk to her not only about how to get your exercise game uh, improved in a way that will actually um, – uh, succeed and without um, involve, uh, involving you beating yourself up along the way. But we're also going to talk about how to scale that to habits generally. Kelly is the star of a brand new um, course that just went up on the 10% Happier app, which is about how to form healthy habits uh, without, uh, as I said before, kicking your own butt in a way that's egregious. And over the course of the course, you get to watch Kelly work with five uh, 10% Happier app subscribers, each of whom has a specific uh, habit they're looking to make or break. And her way of doing this is really, really interesting and very compelling to me personally, actually. So uh, here we go with Kelly. Uh, we, we, we talk about exercise. We talk about habits. But we start with her uh, meditation practice. Well, nice to see you again. Yes, nice to see you. I want to, before we dive into the new book, just get us give people a sense of who you are. And I, your work is deeply influenced by psychology and mindfulness slash Buddhism uh, meditation. Yes. And so I want to just kind of get a sense of how you got interested in this stuff and where it took you. And you have told me in the past that there was – that part of your interest, at least in, in the way the mind works, was a result of physical pain from your childhood. Can you talk yeah. about that? So, you know, for as long as I can remember, going back to when I was maybe seven or eight, um, I had daily headaches and other kinds of pain where it just it seemed like my experience of life was one where my body produced pain every day um, without really knowing why and without being able to get rid of it through the sort of normal ways you would try to treat pain. Um, and so, you know, that got me – it did a couple of things. One is I feel like I missed whatever part of life it is where – you um, can avoid thinking about suffering. I feel like that was just sort of part of my mindset um, from very early on, being aware of my own pain and the pain of others and somehow being motivated to relieve that. Um, so that I think that pointed me to both psychology and the contemplative practices. You know, the, for meditation, I mean, it's such a, a strange origin story. My mother, who was a classroom teacher, had a friend who 
I was sort of like a new age person. And she used to give me her cassette tapes and books that were sort of related to meditation like things. And so, you know, I was the little kid up in my room when nobody else was there playing these cassette tapes and learning. I don't even know what traditions they were from, but practicing meditation, you know, like fourth grade, fifth grade and on. Um, so I, I feel like there's something in me that um, was drawn to both of those fields because both of them have this deep interest in understanding the causes of suffering and how to relieve suffering. Can you just give me a sense of when you started formally meditating and what, what form that took? Good question. The first the first place where I was able to show up to have like a real teacher in a community was when I went to Stanford. Um, I had read books by Sherry Huber, who is a, an American Zen teacher. And it's a type of Zen that is very much focused on engaged living and engaged compassion in the world. So using meditation practice and awareness practice to to, to really to live compassion rather than to necessarily achieve some sort of inner peace or enlightenment. And um, I'd read some of her books and it turned out when I was at Stanford that she had a Palo Alto Zen Center um, that I ended up living a few blocks from. So that was the the first um, place where I was able to have that sort of direct relationship with a teacher and a community. Um, what kind of impact did it have on your life? It's so funny because nobody ever asks me about these things. And I would say the the meditation that had the biggest impact on me at that time in my life was Tonglen and uh, a practice known as the benefactor meditation. So these are practices. The benefactor practice was really interesting because it asks you to think about the people in your life that you're grateful to and to sort of imagine putting them on a list and sending them your gratitude and your loving kindness. But the, the actual exercise is to try to take people who might be on your neutral list and then people who are on your enemy list, people who have harmed you, you perceive to have harmed you, and find a way through compassion practice to move them onto the benefactor list. And I worked with that practice when I was in graduate school um, studying psychology. And I just remember the first time, I won't say who it was, but when there were two people in my life when suddenly I realized with sincerity that... I could view them on the benefactor list. It was such, um, it was almost like a miracle realizing how these practices can change your perception of life and change the story that you have. And there really was a, it felt like a, a radical opening. Um, and then the Tonglen practice, which is still my favorite meditation practice, is the practice of um, recognizing suffering in the world and imagining that you can breathe it in. As and you actually visualize it, right? As you like visualize it. Yeah, you can do it lots of different ways. Um, you, but you can certainly do it through imagery. You imagine breathing it in. You imagine allowing it to touch your heart. And through your connection to compassion, transforming it into something you want to offer the world, like hope or courage or kindness. And uh, I remember first learning this practice from Pema Chodron. And... It was it was counter to all of the like the woo woo new agey meditations I had been introduced to as a little kid, where it was breathe in the good stuff, breathe out the bad stuff, as if sort of meditation practice was about trying to make a cocoon for yourself. I mean, I remember some of these old new agey meditations, like imagine yourself in a pink bubble and it's healing you. And this was so different. And I remember Pema Chodron saying that this was a practice of courage, and. That was something because my own temperament leaned so strongly towards fear and anxiety. I felt that 
like this is this is an amazing practice. I felt what it had to do with courage, that it was about saying um, suffering in the world is real and you can't you can't protect yourself from it. And more importantly, this practice requires you to acknowledge that this is someone's reality. You know, I, I feel like so much of people go around the world thinking that like they don't want to understand the reality of other people's lived experiences, including deep suffering. And I feel like Tonglen is this amazing practice where you have to drop that illusion. Um, and and so and both of those practices I came to when I was a graduate student. They had a very big impact on me in that way. At Stanford for psychology. Yeah. But essentially you were primed to be able to do this practice because as a seven-year-old you realized suffering was out there. Yeah, and, and in I, here, we're so like right I, in your head. I feel like my and I had a temperament too toward empathy, um, you know, to the point where some of my earliest childhood memories. I remember trying to rescue worms when it rained because I, I thought the worms were drowning, which I don't know, maybe they were, or they weren't, but like not wanting to get on the bus to go to school because I was trying to rescue the worms. Like there was something in me that that like wanted to do that, but also was um, very easily overwhelmed. Hmm. And so I feel like what meditation practices did for me. Um, Tonglen and also yoga, which is something that I was deepening my practice of around the same time, um, that those practices, they give you a strength so that if you have a natural tendency to want to relieve the suffering in the world, they give you the – so that you can keep your heart open and not feel completely overwhelmed by wanting to engage with that. What does your practice look like today? Um, Pretty much – well, so I have – I have practices that I do when I wake up and when I go to sleep that are really important for um, my values. So in the morning, um, my morning practice is about bringing awareness to my intention for the day and thinking about what I'm going to be doing that day and what I want to bring to that day. And sometimes it'll it'll have like a word like enthusiasm. Where does or, this take place just while you're still lying I won't bed. even get out of bed. Okay. Yeah. With uh, <laughs> before I do that, no matter what chaos is happening, there have been some crazy moments where I've been like, okay, wait, I just need to do this. Okay, now I can deal with what, right. whatever's what happening. What if your right cat's just puking in the hallway? That, that or is hat. Well, oh, no, on the bed. Yeah, forget <laughs> the, hall, the hallway. <laughs> my husband's trying to launch the cat off the bed. Yes. Um, so that's the very first well, practice let's just, of the day. Just drill down on that yeah. a second, because actually I've been thinking, you know, I've had on the show a couple times. Thubten Jinpa? Yes. Yeah, he's – so he's one of my collaborators. Oh, right, because did you – were you involved in the, the, in the Stanford – developing this – yes, the Stanford um, Compassion Cultivation Program. Okay. Um, so we've also – another of your collaborators was was uh, was Emma Seppel yes. involved mm-hmm. in that? So Emma – She wasn't involved in um, – she was the science uh, director for the, the research branch of um, the see. Center for Compassion. Okay, so she, uh, Emma's, Emma's mm-hmm. been on the show before. I really, really like her a lot. I respect her a lot. Um Thupton Jinpa was telling me – I was reading his book, which is a really excellent book. I think it's called A, F- a Fearless Heart. A Fearless Heart, yes. yeah. Not I was, know. I love that. Not like a lovey-dovey heart. A right. Fearless Heart. I still have a problem with the word heart, but anyway, we can, we, we can <laughs> dive into that. That's just maybe hard for me to shake my frat boyness. Um, anyway, the book is wonderful. And he talks – and I did it for a while. He talked about like kind of waking up in the morning and setting an intention for the day. Setting an intention is one of these phrases – that can sound very new agey and I don't know, I have a, a bit of an allergic reaction to even that phrase. And yet I noticed that it's kind of waking up in the morning and be, motivation is so important. 
And if you set the motivation to, you know, I don't know, not be a jerk today or, as you said, be enthusiastic or – It's not just – it's not just motivation. So one of the things that um, that the Zen teacher Sherry Huber says often is the focus of your attention determines the quality of your life. So I think of it not so much it, – it's, it's simply you're choosing what to pay attention to and you're choosing what you want to bring to – particularly when I did the practice, I'm thinking about moments that – I think have potential for meaning and joy and also moments I think have potential for for stress or worry or conflict. And so the intention is about it's about being it's about clarity. It's about agency. So I am I'm setting up who I want to be that day. Um not like what I wish will happen if that makes sense. It's not like here's what I'm going to do today. It's here's how I'm going to do today. And it sounds like it's pretty quick. You're just kind of – Oh, yeah. Well, now because I've been doing it for – I mean I've been doing this practice for at least 15 years. I can't remember when I started it. Um, it this is so much better than my, my morning practice used to be to drag myself out of bed before coffee and sit down and do my formal practice. And actually, as it turns out, that's not the best time for me to sit and do practice before I've had coffee. So I found like this is actually a much better way for me to start the day. And how would we do it, the rest um, of us? You probably have to start by setting the intention before you go to sleep at night. <laughs> like something is going to have to remind you to do it when you wake up. Um, it is possible if you're someone who looks at your phone first thing in the morning, maybe you can send yourself a text message or something that you would see when you grab your phone that's like, hey, put this down for a second and think about um, maybe a word that describes um, – what you want to bring today or what you want to experience today. But, um, you know, I think it's, it's like a muscle that you strengthen. So this sounds like it could be super quick. You're lying in bed. Yeah. It's like, all right, here's what's going on my docket today. Can I be, can I give everybody my full attention? Yes. Yeah. I mean, that's a great one. Or maybe today it'll be giving people the benefit of the doubt. I mean, you can experiment yeah. with so many things. And I found there are a few that really, that do have a big influence on the quality of my life. Well, you know what, today I'm going to give myself the benefit of the yeah. doubt. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so, okay, so that's one of your practices that evening, I – Yeah, evening practice is the best. Um, I love this practice so much as someone who suffers from insomnia. So it's not like I'm going to go to sleep and fall asleep. Something else has to happen for a little while. So um, I do – I call it my interdependence practice where I review the day and I think about everything I did and experienced and who I came into contact with and I imagine thanking them and thinking about – why I'm grateful that they were a part of that day from, you know, some a checkout person at the grocery store or somebody that I worked with or family members, my partner. Um, and I go through that and I it's um, it's like a loving kindness practice, but it's rooted in memory and how I choose to remember the day. And uh, I'm a big fan of interdependence in general as a meditation practice. It doesn't necessarily have to be that form, but we know from the psychology of it that when you strengthen a mindset of interdependence, when you are willing to acknowledge we're all in this together and that other people contribute to your life, it's not, you know, you aren't the sole determinant of everything you experience. And also that you play that role for others as well. Um, it makes people more likely to ask for help when they're struggling. It increases people's sort of spontaneous feelings of hope and gratitude. So um, I've been doing that practice for for just a couple of years. And is that also in bed? <laughs> yes, it is. I know you're like, do you ever meditate sitting? Yes, I do. Um, but um, my, I think the three most important, I'm sharing with you the three most important practices and the third most important one is um, on the moment tonglen. 
and that is on the moment, on the, like on the spot. If I'm with someone and I'm aware that they're struggling in some way, but it's not necessarily appropriate for me to give them a hug or have a conversation about it, to do Tonglen for them in that moment. Or if I'm feeling worried about something, to bring to mind people in the world who are dealing with that uh, amplified. So if I'm worried about maybe some minor health issue, you know, I'll just bring to mind the people in the world right now who are dealing with a major health issue and do Tonglen for them. And uh, I find that that practice also is extremely, it's extremely helpful for me in managing, um, just managing moment to moment life. And I don't know that any of these practices, you know, I'm, I'm a big believer in sitting down and learning the practices. But, you know, when I teach meditation, I always tell people you, you sit down and you practice things so that you have skills with your mind. But I'm not convinced that those sit down sessions um, have as much a determinant on the quality of my life as the way that I found to integrate practices into mm. sort of my daily rituals. Do you do sit seated practice? Yes. And also I view yoga as, as part of that practice because the yoga that I practice involves breath focus. So um, the, the main practice that I learned through Zen was counting the breath. And the main yoga practice that I spent years cultivating also involves counting the breath. Um, so sort of this perfect uh, synchrony. Well, it brings us right to the subject of your new book. Yes. Joy of Movement. Love letter to, to movement and exercise. Just w why did you want to write it? What's it about? It's a love letter to movement and to human nature, which I didn't know when I wrote it it was going to turn out to be. Um, I learned a lot about the science of movement and why humans thrive when we move. And I learned a lot from talking to people about their experiences with movement that gave me a lot of hope about human nature as well. Um, but I, you know, I, I wanted to write this book for a couple of reasons. One is that I think of meditation, um, you know, things we've been talking about so far, as helping me deal with suffering. But nothing produces sheer joy in my life as moving and moving to music. Um, for example, taking a dance class. Which or, you did this which, morning. Which I did this morning or or teaching a dance class or taking a kickboxing class to an amazing soundtrack that makes me feel empowered um, or practicing yoga. That the, the, um, the part of me that experiences bliss, hope, joy, connection, that sort of the empowered positive states, I access that best through movement. And so I wanted to write this book because I've only ever written books that I really think are about how to deal with the hard stuff, you know, stress, um, behavior change. I feel like I've spent most of my public-facing career helping people deal with things they wish they didn't have to deal with. My first book was about chronic pain. And I feel like that's a big part of my personality. Like, let's just go to the, the pain points and see what we can do with this. But in my own life, I have always – I mean, going back to when I was around the same age that I started having pain – and I discovered jazzercise because my mom brought home VHS tapes from garage sales that she never did, but I did them. I discovered that this made me happy. Did and you that's wear leg different... warmers for jazzercise? Okay, first of all, <laughs> leg warmers are amazing. Um, you know, I don't. I didn't at home then. I didn't even have sneakers. This we were not an exercising family. I don't know what I was. Do I like. I remember begging my mom for this thong leotard that was so inappropriate, <laughs> and I did not get it. But I do remember, like, like lusting after this leotard with roses on it at um, the, the discount department store. And this, by the way, this is a suburban Philly. If I yeah, yeah, yeah. In, okay. in New Jersey. Yeah. 
Um, and, uh, and so I wanted to write this book because, you know, I've been teaching fitness for 20 years. And before that, I was using movement um, to experience joy. And I, I just felt like it was time to, to share that with the world in the way that I share it with my, my local community. You know, the best part of my day is when I teach an exercise class. And uh, I wanted to help change the conversation we have about movement because so often when we talk about exercise, it is about number one is burning calories, losing weight. Um, which can absolutely kill the joy that is possible. I mean, of course you do burn calories, but if that is if that is your mindset, it screws up so many of the like the natural things that you could harness in movement that bring you joy. It just becomes a, often a big distraction. So weight loss, um, preventing heart attacks. We know that exercise is so good for you that we forget how good it is. And um, I wanted to just reintroduce that into our conversation because if you talk to people – who exercise regularly, they, they often will tell you they don't do it because they're keeping track of how many calories they're burning. Their faces light up. They tell you what they love and they tell you what it means to them. And those are the stories that when I said that the book made me, gave me hope about human nature, there's the stories people were telling about what, what powerlifting had meant to them or what the community that they found um, taking fitness classes meant to them or what they learned about themselves from going from being unable to walk a 5K to running half marathons. Um, when people talk about movement, they often become like the best version of themselves. Mm. And by the way, I'm really excited because I hope that's true for me too. And I, I feel like this um, writing this book was an opportunity for me to also get to know that aspect of myself. I'm just keying in on something you said. Many things you said are incredibly interesting. I want to chase them down a little bit. But one thing you said about how – the movement itself can produce joy, mm -hmm. and yet uh, where many of us exercise for reasons around, you know, burning a certain amount of calories or, I don't know, looking a certain way. I find often that my exercise – I'm thinking yesterday I did a 45-minute spin class on Peloton. And, yeah, I loved, I loved the teacher and the music was all right and – but a lot of it was just really hard, yeah. and I was kind of suffering a little bit. But I liked having done it more than I liked doing it. Yeah. So does that mean I should pick a different form of exercise, that I should have a different mindset while I'm exercising? What, what, how do you diagnose that? I, I, so I, I don't know that I would diagnose that. So it is okay to do things that are hard and be aware that they're hard while you're doing it and have sort of an, an inner stream that is like, why am I doing this? This, you know, this hurts. This is hard. Um, this is uncomfortable. It's actually really common for a lot of things that are meaningful and useful in our life that also can produce joy. So I'm not like it doesn't concern me that you could have that experience while doing something that is really physically hard. Although I know Peloton, they do try to structure the experience so that you will feel really empowered for having done it. In fact, I think that's actually part of their part of the way they construct their whole program and product is to produce the feeling that you described, that afterwards you're like, I did that, and I'm the kind of person who did that. So maybe you're getting exactly the kind of joy you need from it while getting whatever the other you know, health benefits are. Um, I don't know that I would light up talking about it. In yeah. other words, though, that, you, you were talking about how people light up talking about their exercise. Yeah. I feel like there are some forms of exercise I've done that I would light up talking about it, but they're much easier than a 45-minute spin class where I feel like I'm being strangled at points. Okay, so the, we should talk about how I use spin class, by the way, um, because I 
it was like the worst exercise experience in my life when I started it. Um, so I think there's there can be value in that. But so the thing, you know, if you were asking me seriously, how should I spend my exercise time? You know, it comes down to what is the purpose of it in your life. And if you are deriving the types of joy that I talk about, connection, meaning, purpose, personal growth, self-transcendence, if you're getting that from other practices and other relationships and you're thinking of exercise as this is for my heart, maybe you just do the hardest thing that works your heart and you feel good about it afterward. So you mean lit actual heart, not yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, yes, yes, I know that that thing that's pounding in your chest. Yes, that one. Um, and it's okay. It doesn't have to exercise. Doesn't have to play a particular role in every person's life. But I'm interested in talking to the person who feels like there's actually something that is maybe missing, and that movement movement seems to help us access the joys that are really important to our humanity like social connection, like a sense of mastery, like self-transcendence, particularly if we exercise outdoors. So, you know, if we were going to diagnose your situation, you said there are movement forms that would light you up. You know, I, I would ask you, is it worth doing that because it lights you up, not sort of in exchange for something that's cardiovascularly difficult so that, you know, you feel good about that, but because it would enhance your life. And I like that's really the focus I have is movement can enhance your life. I'm not primarily interested in making the thing you do for your health more fun. You can do something for your health. That's fine. But if you're looking to experience, you know, a sense of maybe reimagining what's possible in your life, I know that there are movement forms that can help you tap into that. You said you wanted to say something. Oh, yes. Okay. So one of the things I'm most proud of in my life is having overcome a fear of flying that kept me off of airplanes for years and years and years. And when I decided it was time to conquer it, you know, I had I had good reasons. I wanted to be able to see my family more often, and I wanted to be able to take professional opportunities that required getting on a plane. And uh, so I decided, I don't know when this was, like 2004 maybe, that I was going to start doing this. And I thought to myself, where do I – where have I ever felt like I feel on an airplane, claustrophobic, trapped, my heart is pounding – I hate every moment of it, and I want to escape, and I can't leave. I was like, that spinning class I took a few years ago, that's exactly how I felt in that class. So I started going to cycling classes um, knowing that I would hate it, that I would find it miserable, that I would struggle to breathe, that my heart would be pounding, and I I would literally feel as trapped as I do on an airplane. And I said to myself, I'm practicing being with that and not leaving the room. And I will teach myself how to do that through this experience. And what's so crazy, okay, first of all, it worked. Um, And one of the things that helped me stay in the room was the music, the playlist. So I started listening to cycling playlists on airplanes. Mm. I still do that. When we hit bad turbulence, I put on music from like a cycling class. And um, But the crazy thing is, is even though I hated it so much, because of what I had to do to stay in the room, and like listening to the music that, you know, often in cycling classes, they play really music that's about working hard and being tough and being determined. Somehow it got me and I ended up getting certified to teach um, cycling like 10 years later. And although it's not my favorite form of exercise, like something shifted in me because of the role that it played in that sort of part of my journey and, mm. and the, you know, being so proud to have dealt with that fear that I spent so much time letting control me. Um, so that's my so you know there's an example that's a joy that's still not like if you asked me you gave me twenty different workouts I'm probably not going to choose getting on a bike but um it's a joy but it's not a bubble it's a joy bath. yeah 
What else did you learn in the writing of the book about the power of movement for – you said it was about not only about exercise, a love, le- nature, a love letter to movement and exercise, but also a love letter to human nature. So can you say more about that? Yeah. So um, one of the reasons I wrote the book also is because um, a lot of the people in my life I love, love running. And I also don't run. Um, I'm like, why would you run when you could dance? But so I wanted to understand why people love running so much. And runners have such a, a love affair with the sport and the exercise. So I started by trying to figure out what the runner's high is. I mean, I, I think I actually do experience it in other forms of movement. But I thought, like, let's talk to runners and look at the science of the runner's high. And I discovered this whole field of research from anthropology and neuroscience that that the theory is that we experience an, uh, a high that is related to endorphins and endocannabinoids and possibly oxytocin um, when we exert ourselves over a period of time that's related to our need when we were hunters and gatherers to go out and walk, run, forage, carry heavy things. Evolution wanted us to do this stuff. Yeah, and that our brain found a way to reward us for persisting through physical labor. And, And that reward is the runner's high. But what is so fascinating about is is the neurochemistry of it. It's not just an endorphin rush, which is what would make us maybe feel good. And endorphins help us connect with others too. But it seems to be driven largely by endocannabinoids, which is a, a neurochemical that relieves pain and relieves anxiety that makes us really optimistic and facilitates the joy we get from social contact. It makes us more likely to um, enjoy sharing and playing and, and listening to other people tell stories, and it enhances the, the pleasure of shared laughter. Um, and this is a big part of the runner's high. And also oxytocin, which is a neurohormone that helps us bond with others, particularly other people who are already in our life and in, in our social circle. And oxytocin also enhances the pleasure we get from helping others and cooperating. And the idea that the runner's high is basically this, this neurochemical cocktail that doesn't just make us feel good. It's priming us to connect. And when I talk to um, Herman Ponser, an anthropologist I talked to who has studied some of this, and he was talking about how sharing was like the defining feature that made modern humans human, um, whereas other people would argue it was, it was hunting and gathering. And I thought, how amazing is it that, that humans have this capacity to physically endure in order to survive but that that capacity, that, that the biological rush we get is priming us to share and cooperate and connect with one another. It's like you go out, you get your runner's high, then you come back to your family or your tribe, a version of yourself that's going to enjoy cooperating, enjoy sharing, enjoy connecting. And that strengthens the bonds that, that help us survive. Like to me, so that's like the, when I talk about like a love letter to human nature, like that's that's amazing. Um, and so much of what I learned from talking to people about the role that movement plays in their lives is that they are experiencing this social support network or or it empowers them to connect with the people in their, their life who are already important to them. And uh, just beginning to understand the neurobiology of that blew my mind. Are there things you learned about exercise and the benefits therein that surprised you? Yes. Okay. So I also found a body of research that um, – I was not familiar with, and I feel like most people are not familiar with, that has only come out in the last decade. And it is the insight that your muscles are an endocrine organ. So like we know your adrenal glands will pump out all sorts of hormones. Your pituitary gland pumps out stuff that influences every system of your body. 
And it turns out your muscles are also like an endocrine organ. And when you contract your muscles in exercise, they secrete um, proteins, they secrete substances that are insanely good for your health, that kill cancer cells and reduce inflammation and all of that, but also have a really profound effect on brain health and mental health. And um, one of the first scientific papers that wrote about this called um, them hope molecules. This idea that when you exercise, like literally if you go for a run or a walk, your quadriceps, your muscles will secrete into your bloodstream hope molecules, these molecules that move through the bloodstream to your brain and act on the brain in ways that make you more resilient to stress, that help you recover from trauma, um, that increase positive motivation, um, that increase neuroplasticity in a positive way. Um, and there's a whole bunch of them. They're called myokines. And um, that, you know, like one study found dozens of these beneficial myokines that were pumped out by your muscles. And to me, that's, again, it's just so fascinating to think, like, who, who would think you had a pharmacy in your quadriceps and that the only way to access them is to contract your muscles and to use your body? And so I think, like, like you know, you're basically giving yourself an intravenous dose of hope every time you exercise. And that's probably one of the reasons that, like I knew that exercise is one of the most powerful preventions and treatments for depression. I knew that, but this is like one of those mechanisms I'd never heard explained before. And I like to think about that when I exercise and I'm giving my brain that, that IV dose of hope. I love that. When you were writing the book, were you thinking, okay, well, this is for people who don't exercise and I'm going to help them get excited to do it? Mm, no. It's not that it's not for them. But I felt like I, – I thought maybe that's who the book was for. But as I was writing it, I realized that I kept running into so many people who already loved movement. There were more of them than I thought there were. And they had never been asked to talk about movement before in a way where they could explain – how it made them feel about themselves or what it had meant to them in a difficult time. And I, I think I realized writing the book that I wanted – I ended up writing a book that first and foremost is not an argument to persuade non-exercisers to exercise, although I think it might. I mean there's a lot of good reasons to exercise. But I think I ended up writing a book that if you're somebody who has used movement of some form to survive, to thrive, to find joy and meaning – this might be the first time you see it described in a way where you really recognize it and its value. Like this is the book to give someone who doesn't understand why you love running or why um, it's so important to go to that Zumba class. This is this is the book I think that says, you know, maybe 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 people have told you that it's self-indulgent to prioritize exercise um, when you should be taking care of other people or focusing on something else. And this is the book that says, you know, if you figure this out, like this is real and um, and here's ways to deepen it even more. And I think that if if you're somebody who thinks you hate movement, um, because I do meet people who, but what's so funny is I met so many people talking to them for this book who thought they hated movement until they found the right type. Mm -hmm. um, one woman I spoke to, she she waited until her, I think her late 40s to get in a boat. She's a rower now, um, and. When she got in the boat, you know, she'd always thought she had the wrong body. It's not the right, it's not how a body should be, the story that a lot of people have. And then once she got in a boat and felt the power and the power of working with other women to row, she she was like, yes, this is what I was born for. 
And um, I feel like, you know, sometimes it's about finding the right movement form or the right time in your life. I mean, the other thing that I I found in the research that was really interesting is that um, as we age, our brains change in a way that makes us less receptive to joy. You know, our reward system change in a way where you're you're basically losing a little bit of your capacity for everyday joy uh, with every decade. And exercise seems to prevent and reverse that. And I thought, like, maybe that's one reason why people swear they hate exercise. And then I have people showing up to my classes in their 60s and 70s who didn't exercise earlier. And now they're saying this is such a, a tremendous resource for them. I think sometimes we have to wait for our brains and our bodies to need it in a certain way to really understand the role that it can play. Stay tuned. More of our conversation is on the way after this. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile. Third line free on essentials via monthly bill, credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. Audible lets you enjoy all your audio entertainment in one app. You will always find the best of what you love or something new to discover. They offer an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre from bestsellers and new releases to celebrity memoirs, mysteries and thrillers, motivation, wellness, business, and more. What I've been checking out recently is called Our Share of Night. It's technically, I guess, a horror, but it's definitely literature. I mean, it's incredibly well-written, absolutely fascinating. And it really does rhyme with some of the themes that we explore uh, on this show. I highly recommend it, although I'm only uh, through the, the first... 15, 20% of it, but already I highly recommend it. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500. That's audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500 to try Audible free for 30 days. Audible.com slash 10%. So it's New Year's time. Yes. Uh, I think there are a lot of people out there who I know because I see, I see it at my local gym. You have these uh, resolution years who are in there and for a couple of weeks and then, then it's empty again. Um, so everybody's try- – not everybody, but a huge percentage of the population is trying to do the new year, new you thing and get an exercise habit going. You've just listed all the benefits. But that in, for some people, I think – I would imagine that can provoke a sense of guilt and shame, like, well, all these benefits are out there, but I'm not accessing this stuff because I can't get myself to the gym. So how do we make this a habit? Let me start by saying something I think is really important, which is that the benefits I've been talking about and even benefits we haven't talked about, like your sense of self, um, that they have been demonstrated every age, every physical status. They don't require being any particular weight. They don't require not having disabilities. I mean, I was looking at research all the way into hospice care. At end of life, you still see these psychological and social benefits of movement. So if there's anyone who's listening and thinking, I don't have the right body for it, or I have a barrier to it, 
that is going to make this not the case. You know, chronic pain, a disability, a health condition. I do want to say up front that that is not true. So there's no, there's no, it's no sort of uh, nothing required to get started. And what I would encourage people to do is not to look for the thing that is selling you the promise of getting a different body or losing weight, which is so prevalent in New Year's. But like, why don't you ask yourself, what's a, a form of movement that you are inspired by? Like, if you were going to watch people move, what's interesting to you? Maybe there's a sports or like, if you're going to, someone's going to send you a YouTube video, like, what would you actually slow down and watch? Is it a pole vaulter or is it a pole dancer? Like, what, what speaks to you? Um, or was there a type of movement you enjoyed as a child? Like, to, first of all, give yourself permission to think of this as something that is going to be better than you think it's going to be, that there's a chance that you could really discover a, an aspect of yourself that, that you love through movement or that it could actually be fun. It could actually be meaningful. Like, do you want to throw things? Do you want to lift heavy things? Like, what, would, what, what type of movement seems appealing to you? That's a place to start. And if you can't think of that, to think about something that you know you enjoy that you don't get enough of in your life already. Maybe it's being outdoors. Maybe it's um, listening to music you love. I like lip sync in every form of exercise that I do. <laughs> um, maybe it's spending time with particular individuals or like there's something – maybe there's something that you, you know you enjoy and you – movement can almost always be integrated into that joy and so you can think of movement as an opportunity to, to get both of those at once. Um, and then to just start and experiment and see what resonates with you. Um, there is some research suggesting that it takes six weeks to get hooked on exercise for your brain to literally change in a way that makes you want to exercise if you have never exercised before. So that's another thing you might think about it around the New Year is it might take six weeks to really find out if this is for you. And so anything you can do to make the process more enjoyable while you get there, while your, your brain is adapting to this new experience, um, to, to take that long view. You have in the, in the foregoing used the word enjoy quite a bit. And I would point out that joy is in the title of your new book. And I know a little bit about your – you've done deep work around habit formation and habit change. And I know a little bit about that because you're the star of this new habit change course we're doing on the 10% Happier app. And joy is a, you know, the, the reward systems of the brain can be harnessed to establish new habits. Yes. So we know that the way new habits get formed is there's something that motivates you to do something. You practice the behavior and you experience a reward for it. Like, that's it. That's the secret of habit. Sometimes habit called formation. Q routine reward. Yeah. I think So what's interesting is Q, it's often when we're talking about an important habit. So, you know, if we're talking about what you pick from the vending machine, cue sometimes works. But when you're forming a new habit that requires you to really use your agency and do something different, that cue is, is often really a, an important motivation, a deep motivation. Like there's going to be no cue in the world that makes you want to quit smoking, for example. Like that's not – I mean that actually makes you practice the behavior of resisting the incredible urge to smoke. So um, I, I often will use the word motivation to make sure people understand that it starts there. But so then you do your behavior and then the reward reinforces it. And over time, the brain learns this is something we do. 
and your brain changes in ways that makes it more automatic and and often more enjoyable or at least more effortless. Um, so that reward, often around New Year's, we think about rewarding ourselves through extrinsic rewards, almost like we will we will bribe ourselves to do a new behavior. And I always encourage people to look for the joy that's already intrinsic to the new behavior. And joy can take the form of pleasure. So you can look for ways to make the new habit or behavior more actually pleasurable. So, you know, if you want to eat healthier, you should make sure that the food tastes good. You know, go for the, the most delicious version of whatever your new diet is going to be. Um, and to try to like pack into that process, whether it's grocery shopping or cooking or who you eat that healthy food with, pack in as much pleasure as you can because that's one type of brain reward. But there's also the joy that comes from doing something that's consistent with your values and your goals. So, you know, you said you feel really good when you're done with a Peloton ride. Like that is a reinforcement. That is a form of joy to pause for a moment and be like, I did that. I'm glad I did it. Even just saying I'm glad I did it is a, a form of joy. The so celebration is yeah, important. Yeah, celebration. Celebration and appreciation. Um, because we can let it go. I sort of like oh, – yeah. I felt good for a nanosecond, but then I'm checking my email. Yeah. So we we can maybe savor that as a way to deep, more deeply ingrain the habit. Yeah. And I think that's one of the reasons why people so often take selfies after a workout. Uh. I think it's not – necessarily to brag. I mean, I take way more workout selfies than I would ever share with other people because there's something about that moment where you realize you're taking a picture of the version of you that did something hard. Like, I'm tough. I did it. I'm smiling. Or maybe this is who I did it with, you know, and I spent this time with that person. Um, so selfies can be a great way to do it too. Or if, you know, going back to eating healthier, take a picture of your meal. Uh, and that can be a way to slow down and celebrate what you did. Um, but I also think, you know, there's joy that comes from meaning. It's not just the pride and satisfaction of having done it, but really understanding what it means. And that's why getting clear about your motivation is so important because, you know, you can – there can be nine different reasons you would want a new habit and one of them is going to be more powerful than the others. I want to stop and just put a – Big exclamation point on the point you're raising now. Uh, we really want to signpost this because another part of your – a huge part, if not the centerpiece of your – as I understand it, your philosophy around habit change is figuring out your deepest motivation for why you want to do something. Actually, habit change, which we can sometimes think of as this superficial, hacky thing, actually in your worldview is – a moment for a profound reflection. Yeah. And I think even the choosing of the habit is uh, a time for, for deep reflection. That if somebody's listening now and they have their New Year's resolution, it's time to think, did you pick the right resolution? Is this something that is going to enhance your daily life? Is it going to help you get closer to your goals? Is this really the right thing to put your energy and attention toward? And if it is, you'll be able to find a motivation that really carries some energy with it and that will give you strength when you're exhausted, when it's difficult, when you're stressed out, when other people are putting pressure on you. So talk us, talk to us. I mean, I know in the 10% Happier app course, we have guided meditations that help people kind of get clear on what their deepest motivation is. But how, just practically speaking right now, if I want to think about uh, why I want to establish an exercise, an exercise habit, how do I get clear on this sort of profound stuff rather than I just want a six-pack? 
I often start people, I, I tell them, okay, forget the habit for a moment. What are the most important roles and relationships in your life right now? Get people to think about what they are. Um, what are the most important personal goals that you're pursuing? Sort of, are you on a path professionally or personally? Um, is, there, is there something in your life that is causing pain that you want to change in an important way? To reflect on questions like that, or is there a version of you that you can envision yourself becoming? Like a version of you that you want to show up in the world as? And people will often say things like, yes, I want to be the more adventurous version of myself or, uh, you know, the more compassionate version of myself or something like that. And so you, you ask yourself questions about really what matters to you and, and what direction are you trying to move in life. Then you look at this habit and you ask yourself, what does that have to do with the things that I've identified as important to me? And if it's a good habit for you at this time in your life, you will be able to drill down and see some important connections. And that becomes the, the most powerful motivation. Um, and if it's not the right habit, if you picked it because you read in a magazine it was a good idea to drink, you know, however many glasses of water a day, but you, you don't actually like deeply believe it's going to change your energy and health in a way that makes you a better parent or whatever like that motivation is, this is really not why, – why would you spend your precious energy cultivating that habit? So I think that in many ways, choosing the right habit is as important as figuring out how to how to nail the habit. Right. So this seems to me, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems to me to take habit formation out of the realm of extrinsic motivation into intrinsic motivation. So if I am exercising because, um, you know, I feel uh, insufficient and inferior because I keep looking at the cover of Men's Health magazine and those guys have bigger deltoids than I do – that that might not be fuel that actually lasts too long. Not Whereas a, yes. if I am exercising because I have this deep desire, which I do, to be around for when my son gets married, mm-hmm. well, then that's that's actually quite that's that that seems like a renewable source of energy. That when I have my inevitable failures and twists and turns, I can draw upon that in a way that my feelings of inferiority probably won't fuel me. And here's the thing that I think people don't understand: it's not just that that motivation might help you exercise longer. I, you know, that's, there's research showing, yes, that's probably the case, that that motivation will work for you better in the long term. The more profound than, motivation. Yeah, yeah. Than, than feeling shame or stigma or self-judgment about your appearance. There's plenty of studies that show that. But the other thing I think people don't think about is if you choose a habit you're trying to form and you link it to a motivation that reinforces your own suffering, you are building a habit of reinforcing your own suffering. So if you try to link exercise to feeling bad about yourself and the way that your body looks and internalizing societal stigma and shame, you're not just building the exercise habit. You're, you're building that habit. And you're even, building the shame habit. Yeah. And even yes. if somehow it gets you to work out, you can't separate the habit that you're learning. You, you may get an exercise habit, but your brain is also learning, this is how I control myself. I control myself through shame and stigma. And so I feel like in many ways, habit, habit formation or New Year's resolutions are an opportunity to practice the habit of a different way of being with yourself. And you can choose almost any habit and go through that process of finding a motivation that feels positive and meaningful and using, learning how to use that motivation. You could use that motivation to do almost anything and you would be building a habit that's meaningful. 
Right. I've long been sort of reflexively and maybe not that thoughtfully anti-New Year's resolution because I feel like if it matters to you, you do the thing or you would endeavor to do the thing. <laughs> but and so New Year, so this is just like a artificial date on the on a calendar, which is of course itself artificial. And yet, if if you're using the artificiality to do a profound dive into what actually matters to you, well, that that sounds pretty good to me. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I love fresh starts. You can do it at New Year's. You can do it for back to school. You can do it for the beginning of the week. Um, and I think that, you know, the practice that I do around New Year's is actually choosing uh, a word or a theme for the year that is is the year-long version of what I do when I wake up in the morning. So I think about that word that I want to when I'm making choices. Do I say yes to this or no? Um, who do I spend time with? Whatever the choices I'm making throughout the whole year, I have a word that I can use to help me make that decision. And uh, that has been more effective for me than New Year's resolutions, but it, it is a kind of resolve. So, okay, so we've we've talked about joy as something to tune into, which, by the way, your meditation practice can really, that self-awareness that's generated through meditation can really help you Tune into the joy, which can then keep you doing the habit that you want to do. We've talked on an even deeper level and not disconnected about doing a, a look at your life and figuring out what it is that you truly care about and harnessing your habit change agenda to that. Let's just get a sort of a little bit more practical because you also talk about ways that once you've taken a look at what really matters to you, there are more practical steps you can sort of more small bore steps you can take to ease your path. And a lot of them have to do with changing your environment. Can you oh, go yeah. for that? Yeah. So if you're clear that there's a change you want to make or a goal you want to reach, um, to start to think about your environment as something that is always influencing you, either supporting you or maybe sabotaging you. And one of the first steps I encourage people to do is put a physical reminder in their environment that will literally just remind them of what their goal is or what the new behavior is. One of the things people talk about is like putting your sneakers out. Yeah, and that, that's actually a tool. So that could that could serve two purposes. But I, you know, I think also. So like, let's say you had mentioned uh, your son is a motivation for exercising. So it could also be a picture of your son near where you keep your sneakers. That that may be the thing that you need to remember. And then the shoes are actually um, creating an environment that supports your goals. Because that's the behavior that that you really um, want to facilitate. But I think that you know that first step is, you know, people will sometimes write a word out or something like that, or it could be a, a picture of a place that makes them feel a certain way, or it could be a memento, some object from your your life that's meaningful to you that reminds you, you know, what you want in your life in the future. To to put that somewhere so that you can remember the motivation as well. And then look for ways that your environment can literally concretely support your goals. And that's about putting the sneakers out or getting the right food in your fridge um, or getting the technology that you need um, or, you know, figuring out what it is so that when you go about your life, um, there are things that when you get distracted or when you're tired, you have you have this kind of support embedded in your environment. Another thing that another aspect of a lot of our environments is other people. Mm -hmm. So I found in my marriage that my wife and I work out together. That makes it much more seamless. And we sometimes embark upon, you know, we decide, well, we're going to try to not do so much late, late night snacking. We do it together. 
And you've talked about social connection as being part of habit change. Can you say more? Yeah. I mean, so first of all, social support is incredibly helpful for any change. Um, you know, if you if you have someone in your life who shares your goal and is doing it with you or who simply believes in your goal and is willing to support you, you have a much better chance of succeeding. And I think those are two different types of, of uh, social support to think about. You know, if there's actually someone who will do it with you, you can almost in a way outsource some of the usual willpower we use that because they'll remind you of it. They'll take care of some of the logistics of it maybe. Um, and then you also get that, that reward um, to build the habit that, is, that comes from the social contact and the pleasure that you get from that. Um, but also you know, it can be useful to know who in your life supports you in making this change. Uh, maybe you're the only one who is making it or the only one who needs to make it. And that you can ask people to support you in particular ways to um, maybe to stop sabotaging you in particular ways or to, um, you know, give you friendly reminders, helpful reminders. Hold you accountable. Yeah, in a, hold nice you, in, in a positive way. Yeah. yeah, like by asking how it's going and is there anything I can do to support it and by celebrating any successes with you. Um, and, you know, I feel like both of those are are really important for any type of behavior change. Another thing that's huge for you, and we go into this in depth in the course on the app, is self-compassion, or, or let's just say the disutility of shame. Can you hold forth on that for a moment? Because I think a lot of us use habit formation as a fiesta mm. of self-judgment. Yeah, so I, many of us think that shame and self-criticism are motivating. Um, and in part, that's because when we're feeling ashamed or we're feeling self-critical, it feels so bad that we are really motivated in that moment to get rid of that feeling. And we might even make a vow to change. Um, but studies show that 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 place of stigma or shame or self-criticism, it's really disempowering. It basically, it's almost like throwing someone into a hole and then taking away any ladder they could have to climb out of it. Um, and you're just kind of stuck in that hole feeling bad and looking for an escape without the resources you need to, to get out of the hole. Um, and, you know, what we know is much more effective is it's sometimes called self-compassion. But like you had that allergic reaction to even the word heart. I think a lot of people have an allergic reaction to the word self-compassion. Mm -hmm. um, Me too. Many people think it sounds like self-indulgence or I don't know um, that – that the, the approach that I encourage people to take is to think about someone who believes in you and sees the best in you, sees your potential, and really, really wants you to succeed at your own goals, wants to see you be happy, be healthy, and thrive. What would that person do? And, that, and you do that for yourself. And part of self-compassion is also find the people in your life who feel that way about you. Or find, you know, go out and get someone like a coach or a mentor. That self-compassion is about choosing to believe that you have the capacity to change and grow. Being willing to remind yourself of what matters to you, even when you're in that pain point of feeling like you let yourself down. And, um, and having the courage to get back engaged with your goal, even when it would be easier to give up and say, I don't really care or I'm not dealing with this right now. That's really – and you know, going back, we started off talking a little bit about compassion as a kind of courage. And you think about why we have compassion as a human instinct. It is, it is literally a form of embodied courage 
so that we will approach someone else's suffering rather than try to protect ourselves and not get involved. We have a compassionate instinct. So when we see suffering, we will be brave and we will act. And that's the definition of self-compassion that I like, that we have these other, other instincts that can be destructive when we're suffering, when we're feeling bad about a mistake we made or we're feeling hopeless about change. And we tend to want to escape those feelings and we look for the exit route or we, that self-compassion is, okay, I'm, I am going to find the version of myself who is brave and is going to act in this moment to protect my well-being. And, uh, and that's how I define it. What does this look like? So what, how would we actually practice self-compassion? Because I, I, your, the case you just made, in my view, is unimpeachable. How do I do it? Yeah, so it starts by recognizing suffering. I mean, I would basically use my process model of compassion. So you don't need self-compassion until you are in a moment where maybe you're beating yourself up over uh, some mistake you made or you didn't do what you said you were going to do. So maybe you notice yourself saying, like, what's the point? Or you, you always do this. You always say you're going to, and then you never do. It's because you never will. Whatever that inner dialogue is. And it's not always verbal, right? Sometimes it's, it's a feeling. But you notice that and you, you bring the same presence of mind that you would bring to someone else's suffering if you wanted to offer compassion. That is, you have to immediately not fight it, but take a breath with it and allow yourself to be with it and recognize, okay, this is a moment of suffering. And then the next step of self-compassion is often about trying to get some distance from that over-identification we can have with our own pain where it feels like we're drowning in it. And uh, a tool that is often recommended is uh, the perspective of common humanity. So you're beating yourself up, saying, like, this is, I'm feeling bad about myself right now. Um, this is hard. That you say, I'm not the only one. <laughs> like, this is part of being human. This is, this is part of the process of change. And um, there are countless other people right now who are struggling with this process or this goal or even harder addictions and and habits that they are trying to work with. And to take some strength from that, and I often will go a step further and think like maybe in some way my ability to break this trap I'm in right now of self-criticism or self-doubt or fear my willingness to try to be brave and strong in this moment could help all of those other people too. And I don't need to know how. That's sort of like the Tonglen mindset of self-compassion. So I'm going to imagine that my current act of mindfulness and self-compassion is somehow empowering all of us who are in the same boat. And then you ask yourself, so what's the next step I can take? What do I need right now? What, what can I do that that reinforces that I am committed to this, that, that is a positive action. And often I think when we talk about self-compassion, you will hear people almost talk about it as like that extrinsic reward again, like an act of self-kindness, like take a bubble bath or give yourself a treat. Well, okay, if the bubble bath has something to do with why you're suffering in the first place, but I think it's a, it's a more important act of self-compassion. If you do something in that moment, that's consistent with your goal that you get back on track, whether it's, you know, choosing health or repairing a relationship. I mean, whatever it is, don't think about externally bribing yourself or, or soothing yourself as the, the choice of self-kindness, the, the truly self-kind thing to do. 
is start to make amends in the direction of whatever caused the the self-judgment in the first place. Let me make that concrete because the thing I've been working on for a long time is, as you know, because we talk talk about it in the course of the course, is mindless eating. So just last night I had an example of that. I I was on plan all day. I did a pretty good job with my eating what I wanted to eat, enjoying it while I was eating it and feeling good. And then I took my son to see a movie and finished his popcorn and then actually ended up feeling like just ill. What is the move right there? Because that was a moment of suffering. I didn't feel good and I felt bad about myself and I was kind of beating myself up right there. So how would I operationalize your advice in a moment like yeah. that? And were you, was this while it was actually happening? Like were you alone or were you in the like I was in the movie in theater? The movie theater Feeling uncomfortable in my pants and okay. uh, so you're still with your son, right? Yes. Okay. So here's how I might because it's different than if you can't fall asleep at night and you're replaying it in your mind. I actually think it might be a different situation. Fair enough. But um, I so I know from having talked with you about this <laughs> that part of your motivation around this is because you want to have to be more present with your son, right? Mm-hmm. So the moment of self-compassion here, I think, would be to notice, okay, so maybe I ate popcorn in this moment of connecting with my son that I didn't mean to eat, and now I'm feeling uncomfortable in my body. And so you just acknowledge that that happened, and you're having this feeling that you had wanted to avoid, whatever that feeling is, the regret or the physical discomfort. And then go to that place. So you've acknowledged it. You go to that place of common humanity. Like you could even – you're in a movie theater, right? You could be like – I bet half the people in this room right now probably have done something similar, like in this, literally in the same boat with me right now. The first step is noticing, okay, this is, this sucks. Yeah. This is a bad moment. Second step is. Well, yeah. Okay. But that language, I don't even know that you need to go to this sucks. This is a bad moment. I think um, one of the things we know from the science of mindfulness is that affect labeling is really effective, that you label how you feel as opposed to judge the whole circumstance of it. So rather than this sucks, this is a bad moment, I am feeling, and then what you're feeling. Yeah, okay. <laughs> right? you know, it, Loaded and, and guilty. Yeah, okay, but that actually, so what's interesting is that's a more clear label and even just labeling the physical sensations and the emotion. The research suggests that starts to change how you experience those feelings in your brain mm. in a way that gives you a little bit of distance from it. Labeling is a great technique, sort of on the the, the fly mindfulness um, that begins to give you a little bit more space around it, um, and that can be part of a self compassion practice. So the next step is that common humanity, and there's so many ways you can do it. But then I think so self kindness in that moment. So what's something you can do to get back on track? I mean, one of the reasons that that you're interested in working with mindless eating is to be less consumed by self-criticism so that you can be more present with your son. So it's anything you could do in that moment, like to look at him and think, wow, I love you. I mean, I think there's so many things you could do in that moment that would reflect your goal and motivation and also change something about the moment that allows you to move beyond the self-recrimination. That's one way it could look. Um, You know, for somebody else that doesn't have that backstory – Maybe it's about looking at the carton of popcorn and and thinking about um, that you are grateful that you are able to nourish your body and that you are also grateful that you have the freedom to not put things into your body that you don't want and mindfully throw it out when you leave the movie theater. I don't always know what the act of self-kindness is going to be, but it's that thing where you, you choose to bring something into that moment that feels like the opposite of both the self-judgment 
and also whatever that suffering is. So I think of, you know, maybe gratitude as a, a antidote to guilt or um, empowering yourself to take a positive action, like mindfully throwing out the bucket and, and just thinking, I'm going to remember this moment. I'm going to set the intention to remember this the next time. I actually, I think I did kind of the first thing you recommended, which was, you know, I was watching my son enjoy the movie. He was kind of dancing around to the music. I think he was bothering the dude sitting in front of us. But anyway, whatever. I was really enjoying watching my son mm-hmm. dance around. I like watching him dance. And he was, you know, he would talk to me during the movie. So I, I, I did do all of those things. I'm kind of familiar mm-hmm. with the, we've had Kristen Neff on the show. So I'm, mm-hmm. I'm kind of familiar with these steps around self-compassion. And I've been trying to do it. What I do find is that it's a kind of rinse and repeat situation oh, yeah. because the remorse or self-laceration comes back and I just do well, it again. Okay. And so let me – I'm going to give you a perspective that maybe you're not going to particularly enjoy. But here's my perspective on things like this. Um, I don't know that the mindless eating that you engaged in last night is really having a big effect on your well-being and your ability to contribute to the world. So sometimes I think self-criticism actually latches onto things that don't actually matter that much. And sometimes the habit you need to, to train is to let go of something you've been trying to control that actually is not as big of a deal as we have sort of clung to, this belief. You know, sometimes I think the self-critic likes to find things that it believes are going to be really difficult to change, not the things that are really important to change. I don't know. I I'm, I'm, I I guess I understand why you would think I wouldn't like that perspective. I actually love that perspective. Um, and you said... The inner to, critic doesn't like that perspective is what I probably should have fair, said. Fair enough. In the course of making the course, you actually... Well, there was a moment where you said, maybe the habit you need to change isn't mindless eating, but self-criticism. Yeah. Which I think is a very profound... It hits me as a quite a profound insight. And by the way, part of your one of your many, many sort of not to use a superficial term, but like kind of talking points or uh, or insights around um, habit changes. Sometimes you're working on the wrong habit. Yeah. And this may be a case where I'm working on the wrong habit. Yeah. Um, and and so, particularly if the inner critic chose the habit, like I don't know that I would trust that that decision. Like if the person who's going to be put in charge of the habit change is the inner critic, you've probably got the wrong habit. <laughs> right. And if I if if what I truly care about is my relationships, yeah. first and foremost, my relationships with my wife and yeah. child, then that and I'm making decisions about habit change based yeah. again in this deep dive into my own priorities, then mindless eating probably isn't going to make the cut, at least not bef- definitely not before Self-criticism, which, yes. of course, obscures my uh, visibility yeah. in many ways. And this is the, and one of the reasons why I was so sort of cautious in, in talking with you about this yesterday is because I can't know. I don't actually know. I mean, there could be a you circumstance. Say yesterday we were oh, sorry. Yeah, we were together, yes. So, like, it could be the case, you know, you could be one of the, the many, many people who struggle with serious, a serious eating disorder. I don't. I don't know that. No. So when someone says they but want to work on, on mindless eating, that can be a tremendous source of suffering in your life. Mindless eating could be a really important habit to work with. And I was just, you know, in talking with you, I'm trying to figure out, like, why? Why make this the focus? And it's the thing I hope people will investigate for themselves. Because there are a lot of things we're told we should control that, frankly, at the end of the day, it's a waste of time to try to control them. They aren't the thing that's really determining whether you are happy in life 
and whether you are doing what you're here for. Right. And one of the things you said to me is, all right, well, if you're uncomfortable in your pants, maybe rather than work on mindless eating or, you know, exercise to a point where you're, you know, just taking up too much of your time or whatever, maybe just get new pants. Yeah. Which, amen. Two last questions. One, is there anything I should have asked but didn't? Hmm. Mm-mm. I mean, no. I, that's always a great question, but I don't have anything in mind to offer. Two, some people are uncomfortable with this, so I'm going to make you do it anyway, okay. which is I just need you to be as self-promotional as possible. Oh, Can yes. you plug the new book? Can you tell us where you've got a, a TED Talk with 20 million uh, uh, more uh, views? <laughs> give us every – if we want to do a deep dive on you yeah. – uh, your pr- past books. Give us everything, please. Well, the new book, which I love so much, is called The Joy of Movement, How Exercise Helps Us Find Happiness, Hope, Connection, and Courage. Um, previous books include The Willpower Instinct and The Upside of Stress. Um, if you are not one of those people who has seen the TED Talk, uh, just go to TED.com, and it's called How to Make Stress Your Friend. Um, and then the I was telling you yesterday – the little known fact is I was practicing Tonglen right before the talk. And I, I have always thought that one of the reasons it's been so viewed, I d- I'm not sure the talk is actually that good, but I feel like maybe people can tell <laughs> that I was doing Tonglen and that somehow that elevated the talk. Um, and yeah, you can find me on my website at kellymcgonigal.com and all of the social media channels under my name. You're a star. Thank you very much. Thank really you. appreciate it. Big thanks to Kelly for that. As a reminder, be sure to check out the new Healthy Habits course with Kelly uh, that is up on the 10% Happier app right now. It launched today. Uh, you can head over to 10percent.com slash habits to learn more about that. Uh, you can try uh, the full course with our seven-day full trial. Um, and, yeah, I'm really proud of it. It's, I think, one of the best things we've done. All right, time for the voicemails. Uh, we're doing something special this week and for a couple of weeks. We've recruited a ringer. Uh, a person that you've heard me, I think, talk about on the show before. Her name is Ray Hausman. She's the head of the coaching team at 10% Happier. The coaches are a, fe- a feature of the app that we're really s- proud of. We have uh, these really deeply committed and experienced meditators who are on call to answer your questions, uh, if not in real time, then uh, in a short period of time. And Ray is, as I've said, the the boss of that group. Uh, she is uh, not only an experienced meditation teacher, she's what's called a somatic experiencing therapist. And also just, I have to say on a personal note, a high quality human being who's very, very funny and very, very smart. Uh, so she's going to answer your voicemails. Here we go. Hi, Dan. My name is Julie and my husband and I both read your first book. Um, I am currently using the meditation app that you just put out. Um, and I haven't read your second but my question is, um, focusing on the breath has always been a bit difficult for me because as soon as I start to focus on my breath, I either hold my breath or I hyperventilate. And I don't know if this has ever been addressed in any kind of meditation um, work that's out there, but I find it hard for me to focus on my breath. Is there something else to practice meditation that you can focus on besides your breath? Thanks, Dan. Thanks for the question. It's great to hear that you're using the app. And thanks for sharing about the experience you're having when you try to focus on the breath. It's not uncommon to have a difficult time breathing when practicing with a focus on the breath. I will note that this is often the result of trying too hard to concentrate. Sometimes people are able to move through this if they're able to relax the attention and just let the sensations of the breath be known. 
And there are certainly other practices that are equally good to take up in place of a breath-focused practice. What I recommend for folks who, for various reasons, have a difficult time using the breath as a primary focus is to shift the practice to either sound or overall body sensations. When you work with sound as your primary focus, you simply direct the attention to the ambient sounds in your environment. There's no need to try and hear anything or to identify what it is you're hearing. Just allow the sounds that arise in your environment to be known. And if you're using the noting practice as a support, I suggest using the note, hearing, hearing. And if you work with the sensations of the body as the primary focus of your practice, you allow the awareness to rest on the experience of what the body sensations are as you are sitting. You can use a body scan practice to support a focus on the sensations of the body. You would scan the body, feeling the sensations while moving the attention through the body from the head to toe or toe to head. We have practices on the app that support both of these styles of practice. You can find them by using the search function at the bottom of the singles tab using the search terms sound or body scan. With either of these two options, the practice would be the same as it is when you use the breath as the primary focus. Every time you notice that the mind has gotten caught in thought, gently bring the attention back to either sounds or the body sensations. I hope this is helpful. Thanks again for your question. All right. Thanks to Ray for that. That's voicemail number one. Let's do number two. You'll hear the voicemail followed by Ray's response. Hey, Dan. My name is Vince. Thanks for everything you're doing, obviously. Uh, I've been meditating on and off for like a couple years, I would say more daily for the last year, almost to the day. And I'm noticing that when I'm in a period of what you might call it depression or just an overall like low point in life, sometimes it lasts, for me, I call it depression, it lasts, you know, months and months at a time. When I'm meditating in that more depressed state, uh, a part of me feels like it's so desperately trying to self-sabotage even my own meditation practice. And what I mean by that is, like, when I'm meditating, I notice that I kind of sink into two different places, which are either part of me internally is just screaming at myself to stop meditating. As soon as I'm sitting there for, you know, five minutes, uh, my body is, like, so stressed about sitting there meditating and I'm trying to watch that stress pass and I'm trying to, you know, I am awareness, I'm the sky, let the anger and all that go. But sometimes it feels so overwhelming that uh, it literally feels like I'm going to burst a blood vessel. Uh, Like I feel like I have to almost tense up my muscles to let it pass. And even then it just keeps coming back. Or the second mood is that just my brain space is so cloudy and my meditation becomes so dreamy that it ultimately feels like unfruitful, like I'm not sure if I'm falling asleep or dreaming or what. Long-winded, but basically, when I'm depressed, these meditations that I'm in seem to be a lot less fruitful. Uh, I'm wondering if this is something you've encountered or if this seems common or if that even made any sense at all. Anyway, thanks so much again for everything you guys are doing. I know ultimately the answer is probably to just keep meditating through it, what, it, what I'm going on, oh, what's going on with me right now. I get it meditate through it seems to be the idea but again i would love to hear if you have any insight on that thank you thanks for this message 
I so appreciate your interest in learning to practice skillfully with depressive mind states. We do want to be cautious about how we interpret the phrase, practice through it. When we practice, we aren't sitting down to check a box or log time, and we aren't trying to get somewhere else, not even to a different mind state. We are interested in meeting our experience just as it is, arising in the moment, and we want to do that as skillfully as we are able. When a depressive state is arising and you're aiming to practice with it, you can check to see if there's curiosity in the mind about the state itself. Is there interest in investigating the state? If there is interest, then you can explore inquiries like, what does the body feel like when there is a depressive state in the mind? What are the sensations in the body? What is the mind state itself like? Or what does the quality of a depressive state feel like? Perhaps the mind is more narrow or dull. What thoughts or beliefs may be happening that support the depressive state? The idea here, if the mind can be curious about the state, is to explore the state with awareness and openness, without taking it personally and without reinforcing it. This is also true if the state feels dull or sleepy. When we bring interest to our mind states and know them as they are, we can gradually learn about them. And if the mind is not curious or does not have interest in exploring the state, that's okay. We want to respect that and not try and push through it. In times when there is no curiosity arising, we want to move toward practices that can help bring more ease to the experience. You may find walking meditation practice to be supportive in a time like this. Directing the attention out toward your present moment external environment and allowing the mind to simply be aware as you are walking of both the environment and the sensations of the body moving can bring some ease to the mind and uplift the heart. It can also be really supportive to work with a therapist or counselor when navigating depressive states. I encourage you to get all the support you may need. Thanks again for your question. Really appreciate it. Big thanks to Ray for diving in. It's great to have her answering the questions this week, and and she'll be back for more very soon. In fact, uh, we've got a big month coming up as we uh, launch into 2020 here. We're going to be tackling uh, sleep uh, with a huge episode on sleep, a big episode on uh, uh, healthy attitudes around eating. We're calling it the anti-diet episode. And then also uh, we're going to dive into uh, how to boot up your meditation habit. That's that's obviously a huge issue at this time of year. So uh, come on back. Uh, we'll see you next Wednesday. And also just a little plug. If you like what we do, uh, share us on social media or just share an individual episode with a friend. That's a great way to help us grow. Before I go, I just want to thank everybody who worked so hard on this show. Ryan Kessler, Samuel Johns, Grace Livingston, Lauren Hartzog, uh, Tiffany Omohundro. Uh, thanks to all you guys. Oh, also, Josh Cohan has helped who's back working with us for a little while. Um, see you next week. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey.
For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books. I'm Shimon Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense that you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on stage tonight. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.